Hello, welcome to another pharmacy practice podcast, webcast, video uh, type thing. Um, very good friend and colleague on this morning. Um, we've already been blethering for half an hour or so, so thought we'd better turn on the record button. Um, got the pharmacy royalty, pharmacy royalty on the podcast today. Uh, Jonathan Burton, MBE, no less, uh, chair of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society Board in Scotland and um all around just good guy so nice to see you johnny what's what's the crack as they say yeah nice to speak to you too johnny what's the crack well the crack is i'm on a day off which is great um but uh, apart from that just just chilling really are you uh, living your best pharmacy life yeah yeah i'm working four or five days a week in 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 the pharmacy um but the pharmacy where i spend my time we're on a university campus so although initially we were really really busy uh, really as there was a sort of mass exodus of the student population trying to get home both within the uk and obviously home abroad as well um so it's crazy for the first sort of uh, part of the covid crisis just as lockdown was coming into force but obviously then it got a lot lot quieter as uh, we were just left with a few hundred effectively stranded students on campus who who couldn't get home but we look after a lot of local residents as well and we've had a lot of people gravitate towards our service because we're a little bit quieter so we're able to just sort of you know maybe get deliveries done to people who are shielding if they're having problems locally sourcing a service and um yeah so it's been it's been good to be able to go to work every day and to feel useful but i mean it is you know i'm probably in the fortunate position of being pretty much the sort of the most relaxed community pharmacist in Scotland at the moment, to be brutally honest with you. Although I'm lucky I can fill my days because I have RPS duties. So there's always um, emails to reply to and articles to write and blogs to do and videos and all sorts. So, you know, I feel that I'm sort of kept going, but pace of life is, 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 um, is, is a bit slower at the moment, which is good. Um, but you do feel guilty because there's just so many pharmacists out there are absolutely snowed under. I know it's a different experience for all of us. Some of us are working from home. Some of us are in pharmacies. Some of us are, are in workplaces, some aren't. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm doing what I can for the patients that we're still looking after and obviously doing what I can for, you know, for our members and the profession through, through what I do with RPS as well. Very good. I think I think it's just been um, such a period of uh, change, really, for everyone, and the change keeps coming. Yeah. Um, and I think it all affects it affects us all slightly differently, really. Um, we've all got our own situation, which is unique and uh, evolving every day, isn't it? It's it's a bit odd, uh, I suppose. Yeah, in pharmacy circles, I mean. It feels like um, well, last night I sh- I I pulled out a, an article I wrote back in November um, and reshared it because it was a conversation we were having on on Twitter and so on and so forth. And I thought, goodness, that feels like you know pre Christmas feels like another generation or something. It mm-hmm. it's like like another another time. So much has happened. Um, and I know, like from from my point of view on pharmacy and practice, like. In that sort of mid-March to mid-April, basically every unprecedented story that I could think of 
in pharmacy circles anyway, sort of happened. Changes to the law, relaxations, change to regulation, I could go on. Um, delays to the pre-registration um, process, conferences cancelled, the whole, the whole thing was really unbelievable to be honest and I suppose for me what's emerging now is pharmacy, well community pharmacy particularly has done a fabulous job obviously and it was lovely that that was recognised um, by Jason Leach um, recently in one of the daily briefings um, but it's like where do we go now, you know, where, how, how do we unravel this um, coil, um, have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously things have just been so different the past uh, few weeks. I think you know a lot of people are sort of coming up for air now and thinking about yeah, what what happens, what happens next. And certainly, you know, with 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 my day job hat on, you know, I've had to think, okay, you know, where do we go with some of our services? You know, we've got less people accessing our face-to-face -face services because of social distancing. Um, where do we take that? How do we sort of keep the the momentum going you know obviously in Scotland we were just about to launch um the latest iteration of the pharmacy first service mm -hmm. and that that will happen um in a few weeks time now but that's still going to look different you know if we've got social distancing physical distancing in in place that's still going to look different you know we're going to have to be using telephone consultations a bit more and I know we're going to maybe chat a little bit about NHS near me video consults as well. Um, you know, are we going to be emailing and sending information to patients in slightly different, slightly different ways? So I'm already thinking about, you know, how do I manage the pharmacy on campus, you know, over the next few months and and make sure we're as effective as as as, as possible. And with my RPS hat on, you know, we're, we're really starting to now dig into. You know, what are our policy asks of government going to be over the next few months in terms of um, protecting some of the positive changes that have happened in the profession, especially in community practice over the past few weeks, but also pushing, continuing to push forward on on stuff. So, you know, members all have been getting the uh, the email and the links to the survey that we've been um, doing about what do they what do they want to see us focusing on, and we've had hundreds of replies to that. So we're going to be next few weeks getting really stuck into how we, um, you know, how we manage those uh, member expectations and what they're looking for uh, over, over over the next few months. But yeah, it is it is interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunities there. I mean, especially for community pharmacy practice because we've really proven just how utterly essential we are in our communities. I think you know we always knew that. And, and it's what we've been telling governments and the NHS for a long time. But this crisis really, I think, has proven that. But how you take that forward in an effective way. And I've always said in community practice, you know, being honest, our greatest challenges, like most primary care professions, are consistency and quality. So how do you absolutely maintain consistency and quality, both in our supply chain functions, which are vital, and also our services provision, um, which is also vital. Um, those, for me, have always been key challenges in practice, and I think they'll continue to be, but we'll have to maybe introduce some new tools to help us to, to make sure that we're still as accessible as possible 
and we're still delivering quality and we're still doing that consistently or we're doing it more consistently i think uh, very interesting and i think you're in a you're in a senior enough position in rps to to hopefully take this next question so how do you think the government has done in scotland uh, in terms of the response to the to the virus in general so yeah. not from a pharmacy point of view but from a general not, point no, of view. no from, from a general uh, government response yeah okay well i mean i'm not a particularly political person but what i would say is um i th i think you 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 have to give you have to give praise to to nicola sturgeon and her team like her team of senior sort of medical advisors um they have been consistent through this we all know the daily briefing is coming and we all know that it's always going to be nicola and part of that supporting team the messages have been absolutely consistent and i think that to me that that has been that, that has been good leadership you know it's 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 consistent and clear messaging for the general public um i don't know what goes on behind the scenes and like i said i'm not a particularly political person but that clarity and consistency i think has been absolutely key and if you contrast that with the picture south of the border i think there's a really stark difference there whatever your political persuasions are if you just look at the clarity and the consistency of the messaging and the way that that's been presented to the public, I feel that I'm sure there'll be lessons to be learned and there'll be mistakes that have been made along the way. But generally, I feel Scottish government has navigated pretty well through this. And speaking as a practicing pharmacist, looking at you know the relationship that our professional bodies have with Scottish government, and you know you you have to. Yeah, kudos to Community Pharmacy Scotland for the way that they have worked this with Scottish Government and kept the lines of communication going and kept us informed of where they're at with things. Whether that was good news or not great news or just telling us that things were being discussed in the background and that the weights were frustrating, but you know, but they were getting there. I think personally I've always felt in the loop. And when you look at things like PPE and you know funding for extended opening on bank holidays, yeah, you know, they, they basically just made that happen. Um, so certainly as a frontline practitioner, I've felt relatively well supported. And again, I'm sure there'll be lessons to be learned and things that could have maybe been done better. But um, you know, this was a massive, massive change, um, and. That's never going to be managed perfectly, is it? But no, I, 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 I feel generally it's been, it, it's reflected well on the relationship we as a profession have with government. One, one other thing on broader politics, because I, I don't think, I don't think broad, broader politics gets gets discussed really at all in our in the, in our profession, to be honest. And it does. I used to think it doesn't really affect um, things and. You know these ideas are way up in the clouds, and and these people are so senior that that they have no impact. But that could not be farther from the truth. One one thing, and this is kind of coronavirus related, but also kind of not. 
as a Northern Irish person now living in Scotland and, and married in and so on, um, one thing with the politics in Scotland that, that always sort of slightly concerns me, and I say this as probably like yourself, very much in the centre ground, um, this isn't really a party political thing, but do you think the national question affects the politics here? And if so, um, or if not, does that does that skewing of the conversation affect decisions? And and if any, does that impact on pharmacy? Do you mean? I'm trying to figure out what you're asking me here, Johnny. So, do you mean the? Uh, does the way the SNP-led administration does the way that they play things up here and the differences does that feed into the independence debate? Is 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 that what you're yes. asking me? Yes, and and our I mean right. my my sort of inference off the back of that is that I think maybe pharmacy actually has benefited from that. Um, yeah, is, I my, is, is, is my assertion, you know? Um, the, need, the need to be different and to be seen to be different and to be seen to be better. Yeah, I mean, quite possibly. I mean, whether it's on purpose or by accident, you know, again, I'm not going to make those sorts of political judgments, but just as we were talking there about the difference in clarity and consistency of messaging on a general public health issue like COVID, um, we all know that there are also some quite stark differences in the way that, you know, the community pharmacy contract and sector has developed and generally how we are treated and regarded north of the border compared to, especially to colleagues in, in England. And you, you could argue that the same could be said for you know, for for Wales as a fellow Celtic nation, the way that they've developed their services, the support that they appear to have from within the NHS and, you know, the Welsh government. Um, whether this is something to do with size of country and ability to be nimble, uh, shorter lines of communication, maybe. I think there's other factors involved. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't want to politi politicise the pharmacy difference is too much, um, you know, because I've been making assumptions there. But I think it's fair to say that there are differences, and those differences will naturally get some people thinking about whether those differences would be even more stark, you know, should 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 the UK start to break apart? Yeah, no, it's just a, it's just interesting. I suppose my my assertion is as well that, that that there hasn't really been an ebb and flow in terms of political leadership in Scotland, um, which which I think anybody in the centre ground would would agree that in a healthy democracy that 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 would maybe be helpful. But as pharmacy or pharmacists, I think actually we've we've probably fallen on the right side of that because there's a um, I don't know if left wing is a thing anymore, but but certainly there's been more investment into health, and and as such, more investment has has stayed with pharmacy, I guess. So, change the subject slightly. Um, what about RPS? How have they done during the crisis? Yeah, I think the RPS. I think the key thing in terms of 
RPS as an organization is just just how much uh, we've needed to to I guess change the way that, that that we work to be able to deliver for members in the profession in these just you know really unusual circumstances so personally I I, I feel the, the the general sense I get from from members is that I guess our performance as an organization through COVID-19 has, has been has been good I think the positive thing is the way that we are taking feedback from members and using that to inform both our policy asks and work, so our lobbying, and also directly the services and the, the products and the guidance that we offer back to members. So effectively, we've quickly introduced a system where everything gets funneled in from from members and the wider world at one end of the organization and then the teams work really hard to filter all that so that those um, opinions and worries and asks and requirements all get filtered out into the appropriate sorts of guidance whether that's written guidance webinars whatever it might be but also gets filtered out into the right sort of policy work so you know are we asking the right questions of government are we asking them what our members want to ask them now arguably you could say that that that's actually a good peacetime model for for organizations to have and i think again being honest one of the issues that big organizations like rps have is how do you and this is something i've always sort of grappled with and, and felt that you know, definitely we could make improvements on is how do you balance that sort of long-term policy work, things that should always be part of what you do? So a good example for us would be access to records. That's a long, that's a long haul. You know, that needs to be uh, lobbied for and worked on over many years. And some of that has come to fruition now, but there's still more work to do there. So that's always something that we need to be focusing on. But how do we also respond to the the overnight crises, the things that crop up that maybe we didn't see coming, maybe nobody saw coming, but are maybe very, very important to members, you know, the sort of the, the hot topics that crop up. How do you deal effectively with those so that you're reflecting the concerns and the wishes of your members and not just a small group of people sat around a table? be that in person yeah. or virtually that's really difficult because rps is an inherently very democratic organization you know our policy is influenced by elected members now that's good but it's also a challenge because those members don't meet every day of the week every week of the year so how do you how do you stay nimble around that and I think as an organization, when we come out the other side of this, we'll have learned a lot about how we balance these things, how we stay democratic, you know, with involvement from our elected members and how we balance that with the skills of our very capable teams and also the sort of here and now wishes of the wider membership. And that's a big challenge but i think we'll there'll be a lot of learning for us to take out of this and i think we've managed that pretty well actually considering that everything changed overnight a couple of months ago mm. yeah and i remember um tweets coming out that 
you were discussing there how uh, working practices have changed and stuff. I think the team in London started working from home, as many people have had to do, and there were lots and lots of things. Well, one thing that someone slid into my direct messages uh, a few weeks ago, um, well, probably a couple, back on back when lockdown was announced, to be honest, and it was is a, a tongue-in-cheek question here, but it was off the back of the RPS resources being made free. Yeah. And that, that person was a member, and mm-hmm. they, they were asking me to put the question to RPS, how, how do you think members feel that the organisation decided to make things free? Because really, in effect, this member felt that they were now subsidising um, non-members to get access to resources. Arguably, when at the moment, at the at the critical moment when RPS resources were most valuable. So, I think what what their point was, when the value proposition was so potent, the organisation decided to give it away for free. Yeah, and I mean that's a that's a good question. It's a good challenge. That's one I'm more than happy to to sort of take on and and respond to. And I think situations like this it's it's a judgment call it's a judgment call for the leadership of the organization and i have no qualms in revealing i guess that i was 100 percent in favor of opening up the resources because i felt that it was the the right thing to do bearing in mind the circumstances bearing in mind the profession and it was the entire profession had just been hit by effectively a tsunami of health crisis and also we were in the unprecedented situation that we were inviting a lot of um, ex-pharmacists and technicians back into the profession who needed to hit the ground running and support the rest of us as, as best as possible. We felt that on balance to make the majority of our essential resources as accessible as possible to the wider pharmacist and pharmacy community for you know for a finite amount of time because there will come a time fairly soon where those resources will go back to being member access only but we felt that for the initial period of the crisis that it was the right thing to do for the profession and there lies an inherent, I guess, uh, an inherent and a constant dilemma as somebody who works with RPS, who are a membership organisation. So we exist to to serve our members, and I very much do consider it service as an elected member. I'm there to serve members and represent them, but we also have we have a dual role because we are the professional body for the entire profession. So actually inherently a lot of what we do, so our lobbying activity is for everybody. You know, we lobby on behalf of our members, but we lobby on behalf of the profession. And that's the entire profession. Whether you're a pharmaceutical scientist in a lab or you're frontline in community pharmacy, everything in between, we're there to represent those those pharmacists. Um, and, that, and that is going to throw up some dilemmas from time to time. And this was a really unique, exceptional circumstance. And like I said, I absolutely felt that it was the right thing to do to open up those resources for a finite amount of time. And I 
and I I not didn't have to fight for that. I think there was good consensus within the organization. But I do understand, and I did understand when I made my decision around that, that um, you know, that that's never that's never gonna please everybody. Mm-hmm. You know. And I think in when you're in a senior leadership position, you need to come to understand that a lot of the decisions that you're gonna make, whatever way you make them, it's not gonna be for everybody. And you just need to be prepared to to speak to that and to try to impress on why you felt it was important to make the decision that you that, that you did. Um, so I'm comfortable with that position, but I do understand that it will have been frustrating for some members, but I felt that it fitted with the ethos of our organization to step up when everybody needed us the most. Now, an interesting question is what goes forward in terms of our membership and how those decisions are viewed. And I would like to think that it reflects well on the organization that we were prepared to make that decision. And the way that I the way that I think about this is as an RPS member, one of the reasons I'm a member is because, and you don't need to be an RPS member to, to, to hold these values true, but it's one of the reasons why I feel having a sort of pan-professional organization, representative organization is valuable. To me, it reflected the ethos of members helping each other. And in a real crisis, a member saying to a non-member, I'm gonna share what I have with you because this is the right thing for both of us because we're working shoulder to shoulder right now. And I felt that was a good, that was a good um, ethos to stand by on an organizational level. Um, but for me, it's easier if I think about two pharmacists stood next to each other, one member, non, one non-member, we're in a crisis, would I share valuable resources that I had with my non-member colleague because that's what we needed to get through this together and that's what I would do. So I felt that's what the organization had to do. Yeah, no, and I, I totally get it. It is a judgment and it. You know, I'm relaying the question from someone else. So, um, and it's a valid question, Johnny. It's a it, really it is actually it is it is to be really honest. It is, and and another way to look at it would be, I mean, you could play devil's advocate and say, like, would members be happy to pay extra to to allow the resources to be free? And so, you know, you could you could frame it differently, but it is what it is. And it, yeah, you're right. It's a judgment call, isn't it? Um, are there any decisions? Because lots of organisations have made lots of decisions. It seems my own view is that some of those decisions were knee-jerk. And also a story that I think will emerge is that a lot of them were opportunistic. So, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give examples, but you know, there are certain things that that have got over the line that well, the access to records is a really good one, isn't it? I mean, how long have we been banging on about that? I mean, that just makes complete common sense to, to allow community pharmacists to have access and poof overnight, it's happened. Are there, have you got any concerns about any of the decisions that were made by any organization? And what are some of the long-term impacts that, that might happen as a result? You know, some of the examples are the GPHC delaying registration, um, 
some of the other legislative stuff, um, access to the emergency care summary um, in Scotland, that kind of thing. Have you any thoughts around that? I think generally speaking, organisations and individuals are just doing the very, very best that they can in some pretty difficult circumstances. And I think the standout thing from the past few weeks has been the situation around um, pre-registration and, and examination and registration of new pharmacists. And I mean, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind um, that um, GPHC have some pretty wicked problems to to deal with their, uh, my personal view and our organisational view at RPS is that um, we're um, generally supportive of the um, of the provisional registration requirements. And again, it's it's just you know this will mean different things to different people depending on where they're at in their training or what their views are as a tutor or an employer. I'm a pre-registration tutor. I have been for many years. Um, you know, I'm part of an employment organisation, um, and in a sort of previous life, I was BPSA president. So, you know, I understand um, things look very, very different as a as a student and a trainee to 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 how you perceive things as a as a person who's qualified and maybe has an established position and career. Uh, and mm. I'll, I never forget that. You know how different it feels as a as a student you know looking up effectively and i think we all need to be mindful of that and not downplay just how worrying and anxiety inducing uh, this this current situation is just with all the uncertainty for for trainees and also for the cohort behind them don't forget so you've got people who are graduating this summer who are going into pre-registration placements that are going to quite often look very, very different to what they did three or four months ago. Um, you know, with physical distancing and changes in ways of working, different pressures on tutors, possibly provisional registrants involved in the workplace as well. But this actually affects quite a wide, quite a wide range of range of people. Um, I think at RPS, what we were really keen was that the GPHC again really focused on, and, and there are similarities here with the government approach to providing information is, you know, make it clear, make it concise, um, make it consistent. And in terms of the registration um, exam, you know, try to facilitate that in as short a timescale as is reasonably possible to make sure that it's, you know, it's it's safe and it's it's appropriate. Um, and RPS, you know, we've been one of the key organisations that have been liaising with GPHC to try to make sure that all this pans out in as best a way possible. I think as an organisation, we've got a lot to offer um, trainees and provisional registrants in terms of the additional support that they're going to need um, as they effectively practice as pharmacists, but with the, um, but with a um, a high stakes exam hanging over their head as well, which yeah. is going to be restructured and and put online. So this is really challenging. This is really challenging times, and I think it's easy for any of us to um, to uh, what was I going to say? It's very easy for, for for us to just make judgment, you know, and say, well, I don't agree with this and I don't agree with that. But in my experience, it's um, much more difficult to actually formulate the solutions 
than it is to to pick away at them and it, it's very very important that gphc get sort of active feedback and, and challenge from different organizations that is absolutely key um, but at the same time we need to we need to do what we can to work with the gphc and with this current cohort to make yeah. sure that they're just as well supported as possible so there's yeah there's i mean there's so much within that really isn't there um some of those provisionally registered pharmacists are going to fail the exam for example mm. yeah um i don't want to overplay that point but it is a I th I personally think it's a significant thing to consider. I'm also mindful that pharmacists and uh, and even pharmacists in leadership positions uh, have a, a low tolerance for ambiguity, um, as I keep saying. So we need to not be too uptight, kind of cheapens it a wee bit, but we need to sort of make the judgment, which I think the GPHC have done, and fair enough. Um, there's a few things that can only come out in the wash for example if one thing i thought about is the potential increased um responsibility of of people supervising the provisional registrants you know the employers is there i mean there's a question is there potentially increased risk of vicarious liability if one of these provisional pharmacist makes a mistake and actually is that exacerbated if the, per, the provisional pharmacist who makes a mistake is someone who fails the exam yeah i mean there are lots of unknowns here i mean there are we are still at the point where there are there are lots of unknowns and of course there'll be no case law there'll be no case law no. here because this is new and covid19 is new and that's why we're in this new situation I think you raise some important points though that there are um as well as focusing on these provisional registrants which is absolutely the right thing to do um they are the bulk of this complex equation in terms of people who need support and i think i'm i'm mindful and i'm glad that the gphc in their guidance that they've just released in terms of their sort of roadmap for how this is going to happen that it very much focuses on support for provisional registrants and making sure that they're working in the right type of environment with the right type of support but let's not forget like i was alluding to before that there are a lot of people around this who are going to need support and are going to be in uncharted territory so for example you've got pre-registration tutors who are going to be taking on new trainees mm -hmm. but let's face it they are in some ways the bulk of the certainly in community pharmacy practice they're the the bulk of the the workforce who are sort of mentoring and tutoring ready so they are undoubtedly going to take on some of the responsibility for stewarding provisional registrants as well so some of them are going to have double responsibilities and i think they need to be supported in that um and you've also got to look at uh, it's a horrible way of phrasing it but people who are going to fall through the cracks so those pre-registration students who are maybe currently in the system a little bit longer term maybe have delayed taking the exam or have failed the exam on one or more occasions we're already starting to get some queries through from from our members uh, pre-reg members who fit that category you know how are we going to make sure that they are looked after at smaller numbers but that doesn't make it any any less important you know we need to make sure that these people especially get good mentorship 
I think, to take them through what is undoubtedly going to be a really difficult period in their career. It's important they don't get forgotten about. But going back to the point about tutors, you know, I feel that those with the ability to tutor and guide and train are going to have more responsibility thrust upon them over the next few months. And that's all on top of the fact that our worlds have all been turned upside down as well, both at work in normal work time and at home for many of us too. So these are big pressures. And I think this is where professional organizations really need to come into their own. You know, RPS for me at at the top of that list is how do we support them and how do we get people supporting each other? What I think it lays to bear though, is some of the, and this is personal opinion, is some of the inadequacies in our current training pathways. And for many years now, RPS have advocated for foundation level training and support for all pharmacists, not just those going through um, sort of um, early years uh, programs in the hospital environment, for example, but you know, really people working in all sectors should have that additional support over their first few years of practice. And I think this sharply brings that into focus. Um, you know, we need to change some of the culture in our profession so that it is more tailored towards the fact that people do need time and space and support to develop over their first few years of practice. And for those pharmacists who have tutoring and mentoring roles, that needs to be respected and rewarded more than it currently is. You know, we need to think about these things in a more uh, sort of um, career-long type sort of pathway type type of way and uh, focus a bit more attention on the, the value of that like they do in uh, arguably in some of the professions like medicine you could some will argue i agree with you by the way about that and, and i i suppose one of the questions i was going to ask was is is rps positioned to get that potentially mandatory foundation year thing over the line you know is this surely if there, if there was ever an opportunity to get that up and running and, and going then fine this is it i do wonder some will argue that over the years there has been a bit of a deprofessionalization process um there has been maybe some asset strippings probably too harsh but there's been a lot of money that could have been invested in the pharmacist has has maybe gone out of the profession for various reasons. You can put two and two together and see where I'm going with that. Um, so, so to your point, I agree with you. And I just wonder if you agree that maybe we didn't mend the roof when the sun was shining, perhaps. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. I mean, I one of the things that I've constantly rattled on about through the vast majority of my career is the fact that taking community pharmacy practice as an example, because that's where I practice, so that's that's the area that I know the best. All I've seen in the past 20 years that I've I've been on the register is is developments in practice. You know, we're doing things now that we couldn't have imagined 20 years ago, even seemingly simple things now, like being able to administer a vaccine or to mm. be able to prescribe or to be able to offer the the number of different services that we do in addition to our core you know, medicine supply and dispensing function. All those things have come along 
in leaps and bounds. And actually, Johnny, most of what I wished for when I first qualified in terms of my ability to help patients in practice, a lot of that has actually been realized. Now, some of that's to do with the fact that I practice in Scotland, but actually the home countries are not that different. You know, when you actually strip it back and the different countries do some things better than better than others. So, for example, in terms of vaccination practice in the NHS, they're further ahead in England than we are in Scotland. In terms of community-based IP practice, we're much further ahead in Scotland than they are down in England. So it's not all a, a one-way street, um, but I think the development of sort of call it what you want, clinical cognitive professional services in pharmacy has been fantastic. But what I've always argued is that to be able to provide those services safely and effectively, and really importantly this, Johnny, consistently, because like I said, in primary care, it doesn't matter whether you look at pharmacy, dentistry, optometry, GP practice, one of our key challenges is delivering services with quality consistently. And to get consistency, practitioners need support, right? So they need funding, but they need support from their employer, they need the right staff around them, they need breathing space for training and professional development. Those are the things that have not moved on quite as quickly as things like prescribing rights, PGD okay. legislation, etc. So there is a mismatch there. There absolutely is a mismatch, and you're right to highlight that. Do you think that's because it costs money? I think that's a factor. Mm -hmm. I think um, some of it's got to do with where our focus has been in terms of developing our profession. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, Johnny, we've had to take opportunities when they've arisen. So, um, you know, you, you, sometimes you, you, you can't wait for everything to fall into place before before you make your move professionally, you know, yeah. before you get into the debate around who's going to have prescribing status or, you know, before you, you know, lobby for, you know, your profession to be on the list of, you know, PGD enabled uh, sort of health professionals. Um, but I think now is a time to reflect on how important the supporting structures are. And I think, you know, we were talking a minute ago about the whole sort of uh, the ethos around training and mentoring, particularly in community pharmacy practice. I feel that that's, that's always been underplayed or under-recognized. Mm. And I think some of the focus needs to go back onto those areas if we're really going to kick on like I said, in a in a sort of um, in a more sort of quality driven and consistent kind of way, and I don't say that as a slur to the work that we do as community pharmacists. You know, we operate in some pretty difficult circumstances, um, and generally speaking, we do a fantastic job, and so do our colleagues in GP practices and, and hospitals and other settings. And, and everywhere has their pressures. This isn't something that's unique to community pharmacy practice, if you speak to hospital colleagues, people working in GP practices, they'll all have opinions about um, the strengths or the weaknesses of, of the support systems around them. Um, so it's important we recognize that as well. But I think as a profession, we really need to get to grips with this more. And some of it is to do with how we support each other. And that's where I think yeah. RPS comes into play. I th Yeah, there's so much within that. And I, I want to go on, there's other stuff I want us to talk about. But I do feel, and it goes in, it plays into the 
maybe the deprofessionalization piece a wee bit in that we well if we're speaking about community pharmacy we are all, we, we tend to wait for permission don't we we tend to um wait for the funding and and so on and so forth to come centrally and that's that's fine but if you look at that from a purely cold business economic point of view basically community pharmacy has got one massive customer and that's the nhs so over the years we've basically done anything we can to keep that money flowing and there hasn't been much diversification now there's cons with diversification of course but one of the downsides of having one big customer is that innovation in my opinion is slowed i think that point is proved by the covid crisis because whenever we've had to innovate and we've had to i mean you look at when coronavirus came on and and, and the lockdown came in contractors I, I won't name them but they know who they are there were some contractors who were really quick off the mark with their teams to their absolute credit with screens and all this protective equipment Boom, up it went immediately necessity was the mother of invention and at that moment there was a more pressing need than income to their credit um how that unravels is a whole other conversation but i think the example is interesting because coronavirus has set some arguably some quite dangerous precedents in terms of what can be done and i think that's really positive um what i'm interested what i'm going to watch carefully is how that unravels and how we go back to well will we go back to business as usual will will policy stuff slow down again and and just you know is that is that all we're going to get changed for the next 20 years you know that that's I, i'll always be asking that question because I, I i'm i'm keen for things to develop and move on and so on but on on the on the innovation front another devil's advocate question here but so nhs near me um spearheaded by um claire morrison and others in in the nhs great initiative and it, it originated um as i understand it in the highlands didn't it so you know what better place to to deploy video consultation um software than than in the highlands and it saved appointments and, and elderly people could could use it and so many benefits um one of the issues raised of course was was equity in terms of who's got appropriate internet access in terms of the general public that's one issue we'll we'll leave that for now because i think the government to their credit are trying to address that and, and i read that there was money um already deployed to a certain extent to get universal access to the internet for that purpose and others but one sort of devil's advocate question was if we encourage online consultations why go to a pharmacy or is there still a need to go to a pharmacy mm -hmm. yeah i think the key is is choice it's patient choice mm -hmm. and from my point of view especially bearing in mind what's happened with with covid19 i see you know sort of better quality telephone consultations and video consultations that that, that there are additional there are additional strings to my bow to, to, to be fair um i want as much capability to communicate with the patients that i look after 
in a way that is um, good for them primarily, but also fits my uh, organization of my working day and my sort of uh, capabilities as best as possible. So I, I, I just see it as augmenting our existing practice, to be, to be honest with you. Um, I don't see digitization as a as a threat. I, I, I see it as an opportunity to cement my role within my community. Um, people increasingly live their lives online, but that doesn't mean that they want everything online. Um, we're human beings. We need a usually need a bit of everything, don't we? We need a little bit of human contact, properly face to face in person. We maybe like to be at home a little bit more, maybe not through lockdown, but increasingly I think we like to be able to relax in our own space and have our own privacy perhaps, or some people may not have a choice. They may not be able to, to get out of the home environment as much as they, um, as much as they would like. So I, I just think we need, we need as many tools in our toolkit as possible to be able to communicate with patients. And we need as many toolkits, uh, as many tools in our toolkit as possible to be able to actually assist those patients whether that's through nhs funded services or you were talking about diversity there through you know private services that are paid for by patients i would argue actually that community pharmacy in terms of sort of diversification um one of the big positives over the past few years which i think has been a really good example of how a public private partnership type model, you know, like a contractor model like community pharmacy can be really useful, is the advent of private vaccination services, which mm. have filled a genuine health need, both in terms of increasing the public access to influenza vaccine, but also making sure that you know people get the correct vaccinations before they're traveling abroad. Really, really important sort of public health functions that have largely been taken on by community pharmacy. Um, you know, with the advent of suites of PGDs and independent prescriber status, we've done a fantastic job uh, of stepping up and offering those services in a really accessible and professional way to, to patients. So that for me is a good example of diversification. And remember, we're health professionals who specialize in the supply of medications. So you can only diversify so far before you start, where it, before it start, stops being diversification, it starts being primarily a primarily a distraction and if anybody needs to learn the lessons of history about distractions in practice it's community pharmacy and I probably don't need to elaborate too much more on that but many community pharmacies pharmacists and I hope less so nowadays but certainly you know historically I feel that in community pharmacy practice we have been surrounded by way too many retail focused distractions uh, and they have genuinely been things that have distracted us from our core function and our core mission and i don't think that's helped our business case and our business model um, in the medium to long term and i hope as a sort of profession we're, we're starting to deal with that more, more capably now um, and diversifying into other health related areas which involve medicine supply which are fulfilling a genuine public health or health need i think is a is a positive thing it's an, yeah it's a, it's a whole other conversation isn't it really but we do know that 
roughly 50% of people who collect a prescription will buy something when they're in the shop. And if you've got an own brand thing to sell, <laughs> you know, the margins are going to be quite good. So it's 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 quite a it's quite an attractive business model. Be interested to see how that uh, if if these digital solutions actually reduce footfall um, or make it less consistent, um, you know how that will affect the business model in terms of um, conversion and stuff like that. But as I say, that's a that's a conversation for another day. But and have you used NHS near me just before we finish? Yeah, I'm. I think one of a handful of pharmacists in community practice who's um, just in these past few weeks started to introduce that into my practice so i've done a couple mm -hmm. of live consultations and um I, I really feel it'll become part of my part of my day to day and i think it's got lots of different potential uses in community pharmacy as well so especially where physical and social distancing is still in place but even going forward once we get back to normality you know i can see it being used for obviously for acute consultations so I'm an independent prescriber. I run a common clinical conditions clinic. Um, there are some consultations which could, you know, quite easily be done um, by um, by video consultation. Um, I think it's also useful in a keeping in touch sense. So if you've got patients who have an ongoing need for that contact with the pharmacy, you know, that face-to-face -face contact, um, people who have long-term conditions people with mental health, uh, you know, lived experience of mental health issues. I think it's a really good tool to, to sort of keep in that sort of, that sort of care package that we give to, to patients. And you've also got seemingly sort of straightforward things like medicines advice. So for example, one of my sort of red lines in my practice is, you know, I insist that every person who has a medicine for the first time or has a change in dose or, formulation gets the opportunity to speak to a pharmacist. They may quietly refuse that, but most people actually are quite welcoming of the additional advice. But because of the workflow in the pharmacy, it's not always possible to do everything for everybody at the same time. Video consultation would give me the chance to catch up with that patient later in the day when maybe there was something visual that we needed to go through as well, like how to use a particular medication, you know, how to deal with the packaging or the administration of that medication. Um, so sometimes you can do these things over the phone, but I think video consultation has a very important role there. And especially while we're in physical distancing territory, you know, I still want to be able to give that good quality advice to patients. I'm not going to forgo that just because I can't sit in, a, sit in a consultation room with them for the usual five or 10 minutes. You know, we have to find ways Again, it's about quality and consistency. How do you keep that or improve that in your practice? And video consultation, I think, is a really good way of, of doing that. So I think it's here to stay, but as part of the rich mix of ways that we communicate with patients. Cool. Who do you think the next uh, Chief Pharmaceutical Officer of Scotland will be? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no Sorry, idea. Are you, uh, are, you, are you going for it? Am I going for it? No, Johnny, I'm not going for it. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think the country deserves somebody of a far higher caliber than me. <laughs> well, there's 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 a few very strong candidates out there. So there is, um, there is. I think what I would say, Johnny, is we're we're fortunate 
in that um yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why things like that are so difficult to call because we have a lot of really outstanding people and a lot of really outstanding and experienced leaders so you know i could probably list 10 people who would be absolutely fantastic in that role and that's quite a nice position to be in i think to be fair um especially for a small country you know definitely yeah and and it it, it mustn't be forgotten that rosemary parr has um delayed her retirement hasn't she so yeah. i think she was due to retire in june but of course with all this kicking off she she yeah, she made a very helpful decision to to stay in post which is i'm sure everyone is very grateful for and my my interactions with rosemary over the years have been really positive she's so um you know responsive and um you know i remember a, a few few months ago i i emailed her for a quote and i think it was like you know nine o'clock on a friday night and i was like i was expecting it the next tuesday and half an hour later it was back you know so she really is quite unusual in a in a very in a very positive way so yeah i think but I think as you we, say there's lots of there's lots of candidates that will i'm sure bring a uniqueness to the role as well yeah and i think you know i think uh, again just going back to rosemary there I think you can't underestimate just the value of sort of just being a good person and, and just you know kindness you know being sort of a leader who displays you know empathy and, and sort of gets where we're at as a, as, as a profession. I think that is really, really, I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, and it just costs nothing to be civil as well, which, yeah, uh, and of course, she's, she's more than that. Um, let's end it there. Johnny, it's been emotional. It's been absolutely emotional. It always is, it always is. I know, I feel drained. I'm gonna have to have a drink of water and lie down now. It's, uh, no, it's been great. It's been, as usual, it's been really good speaking to you. Some, there's, so many other things we could have talked about, but but that was really interesting. Um, particularly, thank you for your time, Johnny, as ever. Thank you. Not at all. So I'll uh, I'll chop this up and 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 put it out at some stage in the all next right. week or so.